one. Um, but if you want to go ahead and open up to where we were in Ephesians chapter 1, where we were reading just now, I have fallen in love with this passage over the last few weeks and just seeing the richness of truth, but um, as we read, the, the hope to which we've been called, and then this morning, um, focusing on a few more of those things. Um, so as we begin, let me ask you this question. Have you ever exaggerated a story, circumstance, or situation? Am I the only one in the room? Yeah, no, okay, there's a couple nodders, okay. Have you ever exaggerated a certain situation, right? We usually exaggerate to make ourselves look better, right? So it may be the fish you caught that over time just turned into a whale. Um, it may be the amount of f- flowers you got for your wife this past week or how much you spent on those flowers. <laughs> um, she didn't know they were on sale. <laughs> so you exaggerated that there was a line to get to them. Um, you may exaggerate how bad traffic was, how tall you are. Um, I don't know. Um, come to a men's retreat sometime and you can see exaggeration at its finest. Um, let me ask you the opposite. Has there ever been a time where you just thought to yourself, this is so good, or that story so funny, or that situation was so bizarre, I just can't begin to exaggerate it. Have you ever been there? Like, I just can't put words to this. Um, I couldn't quite convey everything was there. You know, you just kind of, in those stories, no one laughs or no one really understands, and you're just like, you just had to be there, right? You just had to be there. You didn't get it. I've experienced many times in life where I'm just like, words couldn't do it. Uh, Words couldn't convey what I wanted to. Uh, One of them has been just how special uh, my wife is. Um, Some people ask me about grace, and I'm like, where to begin, you know? And all I can really get out is she's short and she has brown eyes. But what I'm really trying to say is she's loyal, she's kind, she's wonderful, she's the best mom in the world, right? One of those type of situations. And I think that's exactly where we find Paul this morning. Thankfully, he's not in the first category, he's in the latter category. He's not trying to to exaggerate the power of God or his glorious inheritance in us or how high and lifted up Christ is. He finds himself in that second category like I do when I think of grace or some other great things in my life. Paul's just like, I can't get the words out. Um, and he, he uses so many phrases and he, he repeats himself. He uses many superlatives because he's just trying to say, it's that great, it's that good, he's that loving. And we talked a lot about last week how God gives us that spirit of wisdom and revelation. And why does Paul pray such? Why does he pray that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would, would come? He says, because I want you to know him. God is not content at being a secret admirer. He wants us to know him. And he also knows that we're finite. He knows that we're small. He knows that we had a tough week. And so he says, I pray that the spirit would unlock. I pray that the spirit would enlighten um, just the retinas of your heart so that you may see Three things. We focused on one last week, which was the hope of his calling. Let's focus on a couple more this morning. And I want to go ahead and give you the big idea that I have that I believe is out of this passage here in Ephesians 1. Let me read it for you. 
I believe we could never share a tall tale about God's power to us, list someone or something that rivals Christ's reign, or embellish the love God has for his prized possession. Let me read that for you again. I believe that we could never share a tall tale about God's power for us and to us. I believe that we could never list someone or something that happens to be outside of Christ's reign and that rivals him. And I also believe that we could never, never embellish the love of God that he has for us, his prized possession. And I get those words straight from and out of Ephesians 1. So look at verse 19 with me. Praying that they would know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We'll stop there for now. He says, I want you to know what is the immeasurable, great power of God to those who believe. Um, It's amazing. It's immense. And one illustration that has helped me kind of process and think through what I believe Paul's getting at is um, an earthquake. Right? Whenever you have an earthquake, it can be devastating, it can be intense, and many have sought to, to measure earthquakes and, and see just how um, intense they were or what the magnitude was. And, and you would measure it with a, a seismograph, right? Or you're trying to check the seismic activity. That's, that's how much the earth rumbled. How angry did the earth get when that earthquake hit such and such a place? It's a very um, serious time when an earthquake comes because they're powerful. And so there's a scale called the Richter scale, um, 1 through 10, of just how powerful is an earthquake. And I'm not really a stats guy, so I didn't read this, and, or I, I did read it. I didn't copy it down. I'm not sharing it verbatim, so the details will be fuzzy. But from what I could tell in recent history, um, the, the largest, the, the most immense or powerful earthquake we've had in a long time was in Chile. And it was 9.5. Imagine that. 9.5 on the Richter scale. And they say actually 0, 1, and 2 on the Richter scale. You don't really feel those. But the thing about the Richter scale is as it goes up from, from 0, 1, 2, can't, it was an earthquake, but we didn't quite feel it. You get into 4, 5, 6. The number doesn't just go up a notch. The, the number goes up exponentially. The number just keeps growing and growing of a tenth and a hundredth and a thousandth. So when you get to 9.5, you can imagine it is a powerful, powerful quake. And hear what I believe Paul is saying. He said, if we tried to put God's power and its greatness on the Richter scale, it would break. He's trying to say there is no Richter scale. There is no measurement He says the power of God and to us and for us. He says that power cannot be charted. Right? And some of you guys, that is really frustrating because you use one part of your brain more than the other part of your brain. So you like numbers. You like to quantify things. You like science. 
And it's amazing that Paul says this power of God exhibited and demonstrated in the raising of Jesus. That same power is to you. And guess what? You can't measure it. You can't chart it on a map. You can't understand it. It's so strong. It's so mighty. And that's why I said Paul gets to a place where he's not exaggerating the power of God. In fact, he's actually like, I don't have words quite to sum that up. If you're a teacher in the room, you could talk about and do lesson planning and all the preparation for your class on the topic of the power of God. For how long? A semester? Two semesters? You could have a 45-year career in teaching. And you could be the best teacher in the world with the most attentive students. Guess what? You will never exhaust the content that you're trying to go through. If you were an appraiser, or maybe you're a, a realtor or, or that kind of field, bless you, for one, because someone's got to do it. But if you were trying to put a, a number on a house, or if you were trying to take those same skills you know as an appraiser or as a realtor, and you were trying to put those numbers on the power of God, you wouldn't have enough numbers. You wouldn't be able to appraise it. You'd scratch your head and you'd say, you'd be looking for comps. You'd say, I, I don't know. There's nothing like it. There's nothing to compare it to. There's nothing that even comes close to comparing or even using words to describe the power of God. And I want to say something even more, what I think is more maybe significant and just mind-boggling. He doesn't just say that the power and the greatness of that power is immeasurable. He says, it's to you. It's for you. He says, that same power, where was it demonstrated, church? In the raising of Christ from the dead. In the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. He says, that same exact power is for you, is to you. I don't know about you, but I actually hear that and I kind of, I shrink, right? I get small. Um, if I said it in the wrong context or without a passage right in front of me, right, you might think that I'm trying to, to sell you something that's too good or I'm trying to, to trick you or bait and switch you with a gospel that's just too good to, to, to believe or, or God's power is just so great you think I was telling a tall tale. But in fact, he says, this power is for you who believe. One thing I do when I hear that is I shrink because I'm like, I don't know. Like, is that for me? Like, does he really want to give that to me? Another thing that I do is I, I start to kind of feel like a little bit of an imposter because I'm like, well, where is that power? <laughs> I woke up like you this morning, tired, cold, and a little bit grumpy. <laughs> and I'm supposed to preach, <laughs> right? Cold, tired, and grumpy doesn't sound like immeasurable, great, might, power, strength. And yet somehow at the same time it's true. Even though I feel like an imposter, even though I feel sometimes I look at my life just like you and I say, well, where's it at then? And one thing, one passage I would like to pull in. You don't have to turn there. I'll do my best to summarize. Under this heading, we could never share a tall tale about God's power to us. I just want to focus specifically on the topic of, of prayer for a minute. And Luke chapter 11, 
says a lot about prayer. Um, but there's a few stories that I'd like to share with you that Jesus shared with us. The first one, he says, let's say you have a friend. And that friend shows up at 3 in the morning. Have you ever had a friend show up at 3 in the morning? You remember it, right? Because something drastic was happening, something awful, a tragedy had struck, struck an earthquake perhaps. And so the friend shows up at 3 in the morning and he, he beats on the door. Should have used the pulpit. It kind of hurt. He beats on the door at 3 in the morning. And you know what the friend says? Can I have some bread? I promise you, church, I love you. And if you come to 3 in the morning to my house that you found in Alexio, I would answer the door. Mainly so you don't wake Renner. And I would listen to you, but I promise that if you asked for bread, I'd say, get lost. Come back tomorrow. Find a Publix. Do whatever you need. But don't ask me for bread. Right? But Jesus says there's this friend that comes at 3 in the morning. He's knocking on the door and he says, hey, can I have some bread? And the social situation going on was that I actually had a friend visit me. They're in town. I'm hosting them. And I ran out. So he's ashamed. Can you imagine running out of food, Janet? Miss Janet has never ran out of food, right? So imagine Miss Janet knocking on your door saying, I ran out of pasta. You'd say, no way, Miss Janet, that's not possible, right? And that's what's going on here. He's saying, I'm at a loss. You're my friend. So there he is knocking on the door. And Jesus says something remarkable. He says, would that friend who's in bed with his kids open the door and give that friend bread? Yeah. Says he would. And Jesus says, because of his shameless audacity. Because he had the audacity to come and show up at three in the morning. He says, yeah, he's going to give his friend bread. And it's amazing that Jesus uses that story to talk about how you, me, and you should think about prayer. He says, when you come with a shameless non-deserving, undeserving, big request. He says, because of your shameless audacity, he says, I give it to you. Though you have seemingly no right to this power that is in Christ Jesus, and though you, you think your week is so far removed from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says, because of your audacity, I'll give it. The second story Jesus tells in Luke 11 is, or maybe not a story, but a, a well-known phrase. He says, ask and what? It shall be given. He says, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Another story that Jesus tells is about a persistent widow that does the same thing, that asks, seeks, and knocks. It says this persistent widow goes to this judge week after week, day after day, because of an injustice that had happened to her. And it says that the judge of the city was wicked, corrupt, and he didn't care if this lady was a widow. He didn't care if something had been done wrong to her. So he, de he denied her request over and over and over again. And you know what Jesus says? It says that that widow just keeps on persisting, keeps on coming in prayer, keeps on asking for, for sake of our passage, power, power. God, I need power. God, I'm so weak. I need power. Can I have some strength? And Jesus says, don't you think that just because of how annoying she is, it says that that wicked judge actually grants her request. 
says, just because she's so annoying, finally the judge gives in and says, fine, I'll grant your request. I'll look into the matter. I'll try to to move justice in your behalf because I'm so tired of listening to you. And Jesus says, how much more do you think that a good father would want to grant a request? He says, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Let me ask you, church, have you been shamelessly audacious in your prayers this past week? And have you been persistent? Have you been asking? And when you don't have an answer, have you been seeking? And whenever you don't find it, have you been knocking and saying, God, I believe that you are strong. I believe that you raised Jesus from the dead. And go ahead, if you don't believe me, look at those two words. He says, I believe that power is to me or for me or toward me, depending on your translation. Have you been persisting in that? And then the third thing that I'd like to say about prayer and the power of prayer is don't forget the character of the father behind the request. The final story that that Jesus shared in Luke 11, he says um, it's it's about a a, a father and a son or a, a parent and a child. And he says, if they come and ask for bread, are you gonna give them a stone? If they come and ask for um, an egg, are you going to give them a scorpion? No. He says, and you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more, how much more do you think God wants to give to his kids? Don't forget the character of God in this passage in Ephesians, but also in our prayers Whenever Paul comes and asks for these things for the, Ephesians believer, the, the Ephesian believers, he's not throwing up his hands and saying, I hope he hears me, or I hope someday God listens, or I hope someday God decides to be good. Paul is banking on the sovereignty of God. He's banking on the power of God, and he knows the character of God, and he knows that he's good. And so he can ask for these amazing requests, and he can just keep on asking church. And maybe that's where you find yourself this morning. Maybe you've been praying a prayer like Ephesians 1 for years. Maybe you've been praying for a wayward child. Maybe you've been praying for release from a certain addiction or idol. Maybe you have been praying for a breakthrough in your walk with God. The word has been stale to you for years and you say, Jeremy, I just don't know. Does he really, does he really have that much power? There is an unequivocal, yes, he does. Not only that, I could not tell you a tall tale about God's power to you. It's immeasurable, it's unchartable, it's great, and it's for you. And the last thing I'll say on prayer, imagine with me tomorrow, right, Monday, I say we're going to have a prayer day here at the church, everybody come and we're going to pray for as, all the things in our lives, as many things as we need. And what if God promised us for one day, whatever you pray, I'll give you. Y'all quit your jobs tomorrow, right? And you'd be here. And you'd pray. And let's say that God said everything you ask for, everything you've been praying towards, and that day, I'll give it to you. I submit to you that that would defeat the purpose and the beauty and the invitation of what prayer really is. You may very well have all your requests answered and all the things on your list ticked off, but don't forget, church, prayer is not about getting what you want. 
It's not about twisting God's arm. And it takes 17 years to twist God's arm. And then he finally gives me what I want. God forbid. I hope that each of us would find that the purpose of prayer is that we find that Christ is what we really wanted. Has anyone done that? Has anyone prayed for a decade? I know I have. You're saying, kid, you don't even know what a decade looks like. But I've been praying for something for a decade. And I believe he has the power to heal minds and to heal bodies. And I've learned in that Prayer is an invitation for me to come and find that Jesus is what I really wanted. I thought I wanted answer to my prayer. And he says, don't you know that I'm enough? And don't you know that my power is actually made perfect in weakness? You may very well experience more of my power through a prolonged illness, through a prolonged situation, through a prolonged trial. Because he delights in our dependence. He loves when we come and when we ask. Not because he's sadistic, but because he's kind. And he truly knows what's best for us. And he truly wants us. And he says, bring them. Bring your requests. Come make them known. Ask. Seek. Knock. I have all the power. But come. So I want to encourage you today, church, whatever you have stopped praying about, whatever you have perhaps given up on, pray. And pray until something happens. And if it doesn't happen, pray again. And see the God behind all these prayers. I need to keep moving, but I do want to point out for just a second that the power, he says, that God has for us is the same that raised Jesus from the dead. Can you get more power than that? Paul's looking for perhaps an illustration, but I think he's really saying that the height of God's demonstration of power was in raising Christ from the dead. And he says that power he exerted is the same that he has to you. So let me ask you this question. What has God resurrected? And what else can God resurrect? I submit to you today that what has God resurrected? God has resurrected his one and only son, our Messiah, King Jesus. And since he is raised, he has been resurrected, he lives forever. I believe that with all of my heart, that Christ truly was crucified, buried, And that he was raised from the dead, vindicated by his father, saying, that is my son in whom I am well pleased. So God has resurrected Jesus from the dead. What else can God resurrect? What's that word that you're thinking in your head? What's that problem? What's that sin? Maybe it's your marriage. Say he he can resurrect Jesus all he wants but I don't think he's going to resurrect this marriage. Or you say, I think he he can raise Jesus, but I don't know if he can actually deliver me from this illness or from that. He can raise Jesus, yeah, I believe that, but I don't know if he actually wants me to have victory over sin in my life. I believe that he has raised Christ from the dead, and he says that same power he exerted, he wants to show you. And not in that we just list off things that we want and things that would be nice and things that make us happy, but so that we can truly come to him with the things that hurt and come to him with the things that are broken, that come to the things that are dead. Have you ever been in a relationship that's just dead? It's atrophied. 
It won't move. Have you ever been in a, a season of such darkness where you didn't want to get out of bed? Have you ever been in, in, in such dire pain and such illness that you're just like, this is the end? I want you to know, friend, that Christ has been raised from the dead, so we too shall be raised from the dead. That he is the resurrector of death, illness, miscarriage, misfortune. All the longing that you've had in your marriage, all the brokenness you've experienced in your home, God can resurrect. And the good news in Jesus is that because God has resurrected Jesus, he also will resurrect us. D.A. Carson is the co-founder of the Gospel Coalition. If you've never visited their site, I would commend it to you just as someone who wants other Christians to know where to go for good resources. If I have a question about the Bible, I usually Google that phrase and then TGC at the end. So I just want you to know how much I use it. It's called the Gospel Coalition. But uh, D.A. Carson, Don Carson, is one of the co-founders. And he said something that I thought was very profound. He said, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. And I don't believe that whenever he penned that, he was trying to diminish whatever you're going through in your marriage or life or hardship. He's not trying to diminish that whatsoever. But he says, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. And I just want to remind you, perhaps what you've been praying for won't be resurrected in this life, but it will be resurrected whenever Jesus comes back. Because he said, behold, I am making all things new. He said he's going to wipe every tear away from our eyes. And he said that the last enemy to be defeated is death. Did you all know that phrase before I said it? The last enemy to be defeated is death. If you've lost someone, you probably know that phrase from 1 Corinthians 15 because it's broken. Our hearts and our world. But I want you to know that this is not how God made it and it's not how he's remaking it. So hang tight, church. And look to this immeasurable power of God because it is for you. It is to you and it is towards you. And he's just ready to topple the bucket over. So let's get praying and let's get excited about the power of God through Jesus Christ. We could never tell a tall tale about it. I'll keep moving into the second thing. I believe that we could never list something or someone that rivals Christ's reign. Um, look back at Ephesians chapter 1 with me. We'll pick up in 20, even though I already read that one. It says that he worked in Christ, this power, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. I go back to my, my beginning question. Have you ever been at a loss for words? Paul here is trying to display or share with us or impart to us just how high King Jesus reigns right now. And you know the answer. I just read it. He says everything. He is above, above, above. There's no name given under heaven and earth whereby you must be saved except the name of Jesus. 
There is no power that you could appeal to that is higher than that of Jesus. There is no authority you could go to in a time of need or in a time of injustice or a time where you've been visited by trial and affliction. There is none other than King Jesus. And he says that he has been seated at the right hand of God. And that right hand of God is such a place of honor, isn't it? And he actually says that he has put all things under his feet in verse 22. And that is, there's a couple references going on here if you want to look at them later, but Psalm 8 and Psalm 110 are good to look at. Psalm 8, we're going to look at in a second from Hebrews 2, where he says that he's been, he's been made lower than the angels, but now crowned with glory. Psalm 110 says, sit at my right hand. My Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies underneath you like a footstool. And long story short, David's looking forward to the Messiah and he hears God say to God, he hears the Father say to the Son, Yahweh to Yahweh, he says, you are my beloved Sit on your throne. Sit at my right hand until I put every single thing as your footstool. And I want to tell you this morning, church, that every, sing, every single thing in heaven and on earth is under feet, under feet or underfoot of Jesus right now. There's nothing outside of his control. There's nothing beyond his power, his dominion. Go ahead and turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and I can't go on as much as I did for the first point and just the immensity of this, but I thought a a twin text would really help in reading this and just seeing um, another author describe this. So go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 5. He's been talking about how Jesus is better, and he says in verse 5, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Hear this next verse and read it out loud if you need a kick in the pants. (laughs) Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Can I read that again? Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10 says, For it was fitting that he, this Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, That's why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, Jesus says of us, 
Behold, I and the children God has given me. And just like last week, I don't have the time to unpack that, but I hope you're just enjoying reading these verses of of where Christ is right now and where he sits. Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely, surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Did you catch that word helps? It's not, all, it's not the angels that he imparts power to. It is actually the, the offspring of Abraham, those who have had faith in the same God that Abraham did. He says he helps them. He shows them power. And how has he shown his power? By raising Christ from the dead, exalting him, seating him, at his right hand. And then he says, what has, what has this exalted Christ done? He has defeated the devil. He has defeated death, which was the weapon of the devil. He has defeated our fear of slavery. You can't get four more terrifying words in a human's life or even a believer's life than the devil, death, fear, and slavery. Take all four of those things in your mind and in your life and where do I want you to put them? I want you to put them in the same exact place that God put them whenever he raised and exalted Christ at his right hand. He put them right underneath Jesus. And he says all things in heaven and earth, power, dominion, rule, authority, it's all subjected to him. And he says we don't see it right now subjected to him, but you better believe that it is subjected to him. And whenever Christ comes and he is revealed, we too will be revealed. But you know what else is going to be revealed? Satan and all of his weapons will be revealed as having absolutely no power over those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you're scared of death this morning, I know the feeling. But I'd like to introduce you to King Jesus. Because he's the only one to wrestle with death and win. And because Jesus wrestled with death and won, because we are in Christ, whenever we come to wrestle with death, Christ will win for us. And so we'll truly say it is not death to die. And we can truly say for those who are in Christ, we do not hope in vain. We are not those without hope because we know who has been raised. And so we know that Christ has defeated the devil. We know that Christ has defeated death, fear, and even slavery to that fear and to that death. If you're afraid this morning or you are in bondage to a certain sin or maybe this is your first time at Calvary or even to a church and you're like, he's making this sound like I'm in the worst predicament in the world. It's true. Outside of Christ, there is much to be feared. Outside of Christ, there is much to be afraid of. But inside of Christ, there is sheer victory. Because I can't list something. I can't describe something or someone that rivals Christ's reign. Let me ask you this. Where is Christ right now? I believe the, the message of the Bible, Acts 2, Hebrews 2, Ephesians 1, the answer to that question is at the right hand of God, where he is exalted forever. Not only was he resurrected as the Messiah, 
But whenever he was exalted, it was as if to say, you will reign forever. And I like the way one author put it in answering this question, where will Christ be? Where is he now and where will he be forever? A guy named MJ said, the exaltation of Christ says he reigns in that forever. He has put all things under his feet, church. Let me say just a few more words about that because I don't want to wear you all out or take too long. But this is good. Some, some context um, of this Ephesian church. Uh, Matt mentioned it in our preview, but um, one of the things that was so prevalent in this Ephesian church out in the culture, but also trying to even find its way into the believers was the occult and, and black magic and a lot of uh, demonic either possession outside of the church or just influence inside of the church. And Acts 19 actually gives a couple of stories, but it talks about how these Jewish priests had seen how Jesus' name had been spread abroad and how demons feared the name of Jesus, which they do. They tremble. And these Jewish exorcists got fancy and they said, well, let's try to do it. Let's try to use the name of Jesus to cast out a demon. So seven of them came in to a man who was possessed and under the control of an evil spirit and they tried to invoke the name which is above all names. And they tried to, they said, in the name of Jesus, come out of them. And, and the demon replies to these seven Jewish priests. He says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who in the world are you? You talk about power. Those demons said to those priests, I don't know who in the world you are. And then it says that he, the, the, the man who was possessed beat them up wrecked them and they ran out naked out of the house. I mean, that is just a bad day at work, right? Because they tried to take the name of Jesus and they tried to invoke it. They said, oh, we know the name that's above all names, not in a worshipful sense, but even in a a blasphemous sense. They, They thought they could borrow that power being outside of Christ. And that demon said, I know Jesus and I recognize Paul, but who in the world are you? And it says that after that happened, after those Jewish priests ran naked out of this house, just embarrassed. You know what it says in Acts 19? It says the name Lord Jesus was extolled everywhere. They said the the demon trembles at his name and the people who tried to cast out the demon run out of the house naked. They say, praise Jesus who is Lord. Is there a better name? Is there a higher name than Christ Jesus our Lord? And it says that they all came with their black magic books and they all came with their sorcery and all of the stuff they had and they burned it. 50,000 pieces of silver worth of stuff that they tossed into the fire because they were convinced that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father and that he reigns and that forever. Let me move on to my final point and It'll be in Ephesians and then a couple um, verses I'll display for you. So go back to Ephesians 1. And thanks for being so patient and turning in your Bibles. It's really important that we see this, not from some dude with a microphone standing at the front, but from God's very own word, right? But back in Ephesians 1, look at verse 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things. I've spent a lot of time scratching this bald noggin 
trying to get to the bottom of that phrase, and it is where we're going to close today. And what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to borrow that phrase from verse 23 and look at um, the same phrase that we mentioned last week in verse 18, where he says he wants him to know what are the riches of his being God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Can you wrap your head around that? Paul wants them to know that they, the church, we, God's body, are God's inheritance. And we talk a lot about, and rightfully so, that God is our inheritance. But all throughout the Old Testament and and passages in the New, and then, of course, this one right here just said it, it says that we, as God's church, are his inheritance. I don't understand that. Like the one who is that the, the, the blessed Trinity, the one who is entirely complete in himself, the God eternally existing three in one who has no need of any counsel or need of any, anything outside of himself, the entirely, I'll say, happy one or self-existent one. He doesn't need us. And yet he says, before time, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit make this promise and they said, let's, let's, let's create a people and let's go redeem them. And let's do it for our glory. Let's do it for our, the pleasure of our will. Let's do it so that we can exalt the name of Christ and let's make them our inheritance. Do you guys feel like an inheritance this morning? I don't feel like an inheritance. And if I am an inheritance, I'm some poor guy's inheritance, right? Like if you were to get me If you were to get all $17 in my bank account right now, you'd be like, man, that's a cruddy inheritance. I'd rather have a rich uncle. But God looks at us and we are so in Christ. We are so united with Christ. He says, here I am and the offspring you've given me. We're so under the headship of Christ that God actually looks at you and says, you're my inheritance. I get you. I inherit you. He uses language earlier in this chapter one when he says, until he, God, acquires redemption of the possession. Right, so he's authored redemption. The father has, the son has come and accomplished redemption. The spirit applies that redemption to our hearts. When it says one day God's gonna claim possession. He's gonna take what's rightfully his. He's gonna take that blood-bought bride and he's gonna say, you're mine. And he says, and you are my glorious inheritance. So I don't know what self-doubt you're struggling with today, but if you're in Christ, you're not only God's inheritance, but verse 23, if you want to look at it, says, and he gave Christ who is exalted, who's above all, he gave this Christ as head to the church, to us. Where the doxology should end with Christ seated on the throne, and it will for eternity, don't worry. But he says, and that same Christ who's exalted head over all has actually been given to the church who is the fullness of him who fills all things. You're going to have to spend some time this week. I don't know if it's your commute, I don't know if it's your time in the word in the mornings or your conversation with your spouse over lunch. I need you to ask yourself, because I don't have the whole full picture answer to that. What does it mean that I am the fullness of Christ? What does it mean that I am his glorious inheritance? And I'll, I'll leave you with, with two passages and a story. We good? I promise that's going to be the end. So two passages and a story. 
And I would just like to say, I'm going to skip through some of this. I've said it already. There's that phrase from verse 23, how does God think of me? Who am I now that I'm united to Christ? Um, I'm going to say two things. We could focus on a thousand. We're new creation. We're forgiven. But, but two things. We are the objects of his love and we are participants in glory. I thought those were pretty good two to pick out. So how are we God's inheritance? And, and how are we his fullness? Because we are the objects of his love and we are the participants in his glory. The first one's from Romans 8. That's a little teeny, but bear with me. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? His inheritance. Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? His inheritance. It is God who justified his fullness. Who is the one to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? And here's the list, folks, of things that can't rival Jesus, but they can't separate us from being objects of his love. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword, None of these things can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It's written, we're given over to be killed, regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, and all these things, we are more than conquerors. How does God think of you as his inheritance, his fullness, a conqueror? Through him who loved us. And I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, 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 rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation... Can you list anything that rivals King Jesus or separates us from his love? You cannot. None of those things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I heard a couple amens, but this would be a really good time. If you've never talked in church before, three, two, one. Amen. Amen. Even got a hand. Amen. Isaiah 55. We're not only objects of love, but participants in glory. And I won't expound on this, but I would love for you to revisit this later this week. Come to me with your ears wide open. Listen and you will find life. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. I will give you all the unfailing love promised to David. See how I used him to display my glory, my power among the peoples. I made him a leader among the nations. And you also will command nations you do not know. And peoples unknown will come running to obey. Because I, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, have made you. I raised up David and with David I raised up you Israel and the greater David has come and I raised him up and what else has he raised up in Christ church us and he has made us glorious so how does God think of you today this is my little guy Renner love that kid but he does a sweet thing and this is how I think God thinks of us. But he goes up to his animals, his little zoo animals, and you better believe he dumps the entire bucket out, even if we just clean them up. And he goes up to them, and he's not all about the trees or the, the big giraffes, right? Nowadays, he goes up to it, and his favorite, he says, baby hoppo, baby hippo, if you don't speak baby. And he says, baby hoppo, baby hoppo. 
And he, he, he rifles through that, that stack of animals and he looks for the baby hippo and he loves the baby rhino. He loves the baby elephant. And then he takes that little baby and he, he kisses it. And he goes, baby. And he says, my baby. You know, as you can imagine, you've seen just tears coming out here in front of, a, you know, 600 people. You can imagine in my living room. I'm just like, I'm just lost. <laughs> like, this is the cutest thing I've ever seen. And you know what I do every single time, right? If you're a parent, you know what I do. I pick that little nugget up and I get on the underside of that chunky cheek and I kiss him and I say, guess what? You're my baby. And you know what God's doing? At the same time that I'm picking up my baby, picking up his babies, God looks at me and he picks me up and he says, Jeremy, you're my baby. He says, I love you. I'm for you. I'm not against you. I have power and it's yours. I've exalted a savior and he reigns. And you are my inheritance. You're my baby. And maybe you don't like the terminology of that, I love it, but find another illustration that just helps you put together what does it mean to be the inheritance of God. Mine is I look at Renner and he's just kissing that little hippo and he says, baby, you're mine. And I believe that's the way that God looks at us in Christ Jesus. 